CMSF, the annual conference of the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, brings together a mix of local and international speakers to discuss the most pertinent topics of Australia's $2.7 trillion superannuation sector. Join a host of AIST personalities in this podcast series as we sit down with some of the key speakers from the 2019 conference to give you an overview of their expertise and insight on some of the biggest topics to be discussed at this year's conference. Right, hello and welcome to this AIST podcast. My name is Jeff Wallens from AIST's training and education team and I have the privilege of introducing Larry Beeferman who is from Boston and he's going to be speaking to us about workers' capital. It's all about the members. Hi, Larry. Uh, uh, thanks very much, Jeff. I appreciate the opportunity to, to, to talk with you. Uh, 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 the uh, Before this uh, uh, a broadcast. I gave a presentation and engaged a number of trustees in a discussion. Uh, and the way I framed the discussion, uh, for one of a better phrase, was about member voice uh, and the extent to which trustees hear member voice and take account of what members say, <clears throat> which I think is an important issue, which plays out in a lot of uh, in a lot of uh, different ways. Uh, my preface to those remarks were that, first, that issue, which has a lot of dimensions, but one core element of it is an understanding of, of, uh, of fiduciary, uh, fiduciary duty. And I kind of went through the formulations of fiduciary duty under Australian law uh, and under, uh, under a, a relevant law in the United States. And they're largely the same, almost identical in a number of respects. So the notions are the same. So that, first, was one similarity. The second similarity which I emphasized was that I think in the U.S. by statute, by legislation, and I think Australia by court interpretation, the, the prescription of fiduciary duty uh, is understood in terms of what's called trust law. And very simply stated, a trust law is a scenario in which a person decides to take some of his assets, set them aside, and assign a particular individual who gets labeled as a trustee to invest those uh, monies and distribute the principal and interest of those investments to certain individuals whom the in individual who has set aside the money, that individual is called the grantor, has set aside to be distributed to, quote, beneficiaries. And once the grantor does that, the grantor has nothing more to do with the, with the trust, and the beneficiaries have no say in terms of how the trust is run other than to complain if it, the trustee doesn't follow the rules which the grantor has given him or her. So that's sort of the stereotypical, quote, trust arrangement and trust law is built around that. And one key point is that it was a model, quite understandably, was viewed in terms of fin a financial calculus, that is, in terms of uh, the financial risk and reward as it ultimately would bear upon the distributions of principal and interest uh, uh, payable to the uh, beneficiaries pursuant to the grantor's prescription. And I argued that in the United States and Australia, for slightly different reasons, that, that the fiduciary duty of trustees, excuse me, of, of, of superannuation or pension fund uh, trustees, is viewed in the same kind of way, viewed in terms of trust law. And I said, why? What has trust law got to do with this? And essentially my argument was that people saw uh, what were originally the form of plans that were typical in the certainly United States, and I think also in Australia were defined benefit plans, which were prescriptions, according to which people, money was set aside and invested, 
which would support the payment of pensions, regular monthly, regular payments over a person's post-retirement period. And for a variety of reasons, it looked and felt and smelt like a trust. And therefore, <coughs> uh, fiduciary duty was understood in terms of a purely financial, uh, financial uh, calculus. And members had no say with regard to what was done or how it was done. But the task of the trustees was to get, the, get those promises kept. And I said, I have argued, I've written about this, that in fact uh, uh, it was a nice model, but they got it wrong, that trust law really wasn't the way to go because the way divine benefit plans were constructed in the first place, they were involved with some understanding through a union or otherwise about creating a plan or an enterprise in which the contributions came from workers, directly or indirectly, in which the workers had an ongoing stake in it and involvement. Their enterprise, the fate of the enterprise in which they work, was bound up with whether or not the pension plan could survive. So it was a very much, much very different set of relationships. And by necessity, workers had certainly had an interest in the payment of their pensions, but among other things, they had an interest in the survival of their enterprise. If the promises were too big, you could wipe out the enterprise because you couldn't keep the promises. So they had interests other than the purely financial interest of the pension payments. And I go on to argue that, in fact, workers had other interests which were implicated by those plans and therefore needed to be viewed differently. I then said, look, these days defined contribution plans are the more dominant model, certainly in, the, in Australia and increasingly in the United States. And they go even further in the following sense, that they're typically built on choice. The premise or the assumption is Okay, that people should have choices in, in Australia, A, choices of what funds plan they want to participate in, and second, they get a menu of choices. And I pose the question, why do they, what is it about, why, should, why do people have choices? And it's premised on the notion that people can identify what their own interests are, what they care about, A, should be able to articulate that, and in some measure, the choices that they feel are important to them and how they should be pursued should be honored. So that to me, reinforces the argument I've made with regard to defined benefit plans. We go even further, given the way defined contribution plans are operated, that in fact members need to, have, uh, need to have a voice with regard to, in effect, how their plans are constructed and in a way what kinds of interests of members they would pursue. Recognizing, of course, that members have extremely important concern about financial security uh, in retirement. So that was kind of one, one example. I'll just be very brief with regard to the other. They're very contrasting, but I think they raise analogous points. I cited some very interesting academic work, uh, which involves surveys of, of, of uh, superannuation plan executives, interviews rather, of superannuation plan executives, and a survey of a representative sample of plan members. <clears throat> and basically, <clears throat> uh, the thrust of th their findings, at least seem to suggest, A, executives... Uh, were lean to, uh, let's say, certain relatively high-risk models, even though a significant proportion of the, the people who were default uh, investors were, had low-risk tolerance. So there was some disconnect between what the decisions were in regard to that part of how the plan was designed and how, what members wanted. The, the interviews also suggested that uh, plan executives thought that plan members were uninvolved and, and, and uh, unaware or, or ignorant. The interviews suggested what seems like a contradiction in terms, uh, but really in a way wasn't. That is, even though the plan members who were defaulters, they were active in the sense that they were aware that they were defaulting. 
They were aware because they were alert to their own limitations in terms of the financial capacities, okay, and were conscious that there were other people with expertise who, if they did it right and were held accountable, could act for their benefit. So here then you had a disconnect. On one hand, you have a different picture of who members are and how they think of themselves and what, what plan executives thought, at least according to these interviews and, uh, and, and surveys. So, so that, that suggested, at least in that context, whatever those surveys and interviews tell us, that, that in effect, members' voice was not being heard there. And I, then I posed a larger question to the people there about the extent to which, in, in the superannuation schemes, members' voice is seriously solicited part of this board, what do you mean by serious and second, to what extent it's heard? Thanks, Larry. Larry, there's, there's a couple of very interesting requirements or, or, or structures within a, a super fund or objectives within a super fund that de- kind of defines really the, the underlying integrity of our, of, of our system. One of those is, the, is our, our sole purpose test the, the the requirement on a super fund to, to have a sole purpose and then, and that that's bound up by by some core purposes and we talked earlier on and you, you showed us some slides around the the, uh, the 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 fact that the legislation dictates or mentions that super funds must have a degree of care skill and diligence and that there's a very similar wording in in US law around the, the running of a super fund. I'm, I'm interested in your comments around some of the, the similarities between things like the sole purpose test and the structure of trustee boards. For example, we have this equal representation requirement that you talked about and this best interests requirement that, that right. we have. Yeah, no, I went through, I compared under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, the 1974 important legislation in the United States, uh, reforming how... how uh, retirement plans in the private sector were organized and operated in the United States, and uh, the uh, sort of similar legislation, the Superannuation Industry Supervision Act of 1993. And I said many of the elements, the elements are largely the same. And the two that are most important here are the so-called sole purpose test and interest test. Okay, uh, the phrasing is different. I'll focus on the American version, but it's basically the same. Okay, one is. Uh, uh, that in the in the American version, okay, uh, that the decisions of the of the fiduciary must be for the exclusive purpose of the of the, of serving the, the the participants or beneficiaries. A, that's the exclusive purpose test, and solely in the interests of plan participants and in, and beneficiaries. Right? The two they're two different things. Okay. Uh, the Act literally doesn't define what the interests, though, of participants and beneficiaries are. Ne- neither does the Australian Act. The argument I kind of outlined before was uh, that for a variety of reasons, including this interest in, in the application of trust law, but also uh, that the co- corporations in which plans make investments, okay, the understanding of that is much of those Corporations is much debated, and what their own purposes are and whose interests they serve. Okay, and there's certain views and dominant views of the sole purpose uh, of those enterprises is making a profit. It's purely financial, but there's some debate about whether the corporate purposes have to be beyond that. And what I suggested was that this arguably narrow view or limited view that enterprises are only concerned with quote profit and financial 
Calculus or Risk Award is, the, in a way, the flip side or complements this sort of narrow or perhaps crab view of how retirement plans should serve members' interests. That is, what members' interests are. My argument is that one has to think about, A, whether or not members have interests other than financial ones. Of course, members have a great interest, serious interest, in the financial outcomes that relate to their income, security, and retirement. Uh, but, but plan members are human beings, and human beings have interests other than financial ones. They may be larger or smaller. Okay. And, the, and, and people who are investors in enterprises also, they may be shareholders, but they only have those interests. <clears throat> my argument is that uh, this, my contention is there are serious arguments that say that when we look at, even if we're talking about, quote, the best interests of plan members, the question is what are the interests to be served? And I would suggest that there needs to be a conversation about whether and under what circumstances member voice should be heard and account should be taken of other interests that members might wish to articulate. Great. Thank you, Larry. Final question, and we are running out of time, unfortunately. The, the U.S. retirement system mm-hmm. currently sits at, at about $26 trillion of funds under management, which makes the Australian system about 10% of that size. Our defined benefit makeup of that is about 13%, whereas that proportion in the US of defined benefit funds is about 40%. So could you just comment a little bit just quickly on, on the, the change that you're seeing in that proportion in the US? All right, for just one note, even though absolutely the assets in Australia are smaller, relative to the size of your economy, my guess is your uh, assets in your retirement system are probably on the same proportion than the United States, first thing. Uh, again, in the United States, it was overwhelmingly defined benefit plans on the public and private sector up through about the late, late 1980s, and it was a sea change for all kinds of reasons. And there's been a significant shift toward defined contributions in the United States. They now, in total assets, they've outstripped the defined benefit plans. And then there's another chunk of money, significant, in what are called individual retirement accounts, which are a little bit like your self-managed superannuation plans. So but certainly defined benefit plans at this point are only let's say a third of all these 26 trillion assets, probably even less. In Australia, before the, uh, the SIS Act in 1993, my guess is the dominant model was a defined benefit model, but under this new regime, so to say, you have gone to a defined contribution scheme. So in a sense, the United States is sl- maybe slowly arriving, uh, may, uh, there'll be a number of years at something closer to the, the, the mix in, in Australia. Great. Thank you very much, Larry. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for your time and have a lovely day. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to listen to our other interviews with key speakers from CMSF 2019. You can find out more on our upcoming events program by heading to aist.asn.au forward slash events. See you next time.